listening to Giant Size, the comics podcast that believes that comics are for everyone. There's a comic out there for you and all of your friends. I'm Moises Chuyan. Usually joining me is my friend, the Lex Luthor 2000 to my Loki 2016, the the Smiler to my The Beast, if you're a Transmetropolitan fan, Mr. John Golson. John was not available when I needed to get this episode out. He's a very busy man. He's performing in some sketch comedy shows here in Austin, Texas. I'll put info in the show notes. If you're in Austin this Friday, you, yes you, listening to this right now can go see John Golson live. On this episode of the show, John is going to join me virtually. He did an interview with Mr. Dean Haspiel at the recent uh, Austin Wizard World show. I did an interview with Alex DeCampi. So you're going to be hearing two uncut, uninterrupted interviews with these two fantastic superstar deviant miscreant creators. I'm recording this after the end of the 2016 U.S. election. It's crazy world out there. And hopefully this chat with Dean Haspiel that we're going to start off with will do something for you. Make you feel like there is something out there that you can do. This episode of Giant Size is brought to you by Fracture. You'll hear more about them as the show continues. So let's start off with the creator of Red Hook, the one and only Mr. Dean Haspiel, talking to John. It's going to be, it's going to be like therapy, because here's what happened. So I told you that I read your story, The Last uh, Romantic Antihero. Yes. In heavy metal. And right. I, I think the issue before last uh, right. was the sex issue, and it had that story in it. 282, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. And so I read that, and I'm like, I like it. I dig it. It's got sort of a, there's a, touches of like anti uh, uh, social network kind oh, of yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, there is. There is. Um, and then I get done with that, and I decide to try your new book, uh, The Red Hook, on Webtoon. Which is a digital comic. And, and not only that, but. Um, my thing was it also starts with sort of this apocalyptic yes. uh, setup. What are you afraid of, Dean Haspiel? <laughs> like, what are, are, oh. is Armageddon on your mind? I'm afraid uh, more of apathy and indifference than I am of Armageddon. Because mm-hmm. Armageddon brings people together. Ah, think about that. Which it actually does in your in your yes, it does. So apocalypse, Armageddon, what I mean, listen, I, I you know, experienced 9-11, you know. Personally, were you living? You were living. I was in New York City, uh, in Brooklyn, and when the towers fell, there was this huge black smoke that came across the river over Brooklyn. And I remember, and I still have the evidence, uh, burnt letters and um, aspects of the towers came flying into my window from Manhattan in Brooklyn. So, but what I do remember as well is the uh, everyone looked at each other. And instead of like, you know, back then there weren't, there wasn't this kind of, you know, smartphone culture right. where everyone's ignoring each other uh, on purpose or not. And, but then, you know, you still kind of like had your shields up, at, at, you know, in big cities. That's what people do. And you're trained that way. But I remember this astonishing thing that happened where everyone looked at each other's eyes and they're like, with the, with the intent of, are you okay? I'm okay, kind of thing. And if you need any help, like, just give a shout. You know, don't be afraid. And I thought that was a beautiful thing. And it kind of went away. You know, you get used to um, things being okay, so you don't really look at each other anymore, yeah. you know? And now we have this smartphone culture that I'm also a part of. I, I, I'm culpable, too. But I do, whenever I ride a subway, even, even as last week, everyone is looking at their version of a newspaper, whether it's on their phone or a book or whatever, and I get it. That's what you do, right? For me, I look at everyone. I'm, I'm an observer. I, I also like to engage whenever possible. Uh, also, I find like to be almost a meditation, just watching people behave. So, I don't know. Uh, while everyone is kind of tuning in and tuning out, I'm kind of, you know, uh, checking people, you know, and, 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 and watching things. And maybe that's the writer in me and the person that draws. It's just I'm still collecting information for when I'm sitting at that art table for 12 hours a day. And, like, rather than only using Google search, you know, I'm trying to also use my sense of memory. So maybe I'm cataloging behavior as well. So they talk about, like, uh, the chemical reaction to somebody's body of, like, a like on Facebook or a like on, on Twitter being exactly the same as, like, giving a, a mouse a piece of cheese like essentially you're sort of like and you and it creates a, a weird kind of addiction and I find that like I, so I'm a big movie fan and 
one of the worst things to me has been about the smartphones has been in my enjoyment of films at home. Mm -hmm. And I have to like, if I'm going to be serious about watching something, I have to make sure that this this device is somewhere else, like yeah. inaccessible. Because yes. otherwise, the minute the movie hits a part where characters aren't talking or there's no action, I'm checking Twitter, I'm checking Facebook. What's and I used to not, I mean, I yeah. didn't always have a phone, so I used to actually watch them. You're talking about immersion, and I think everyone is, is has one foot immersed into the social networking culture, for lack of a better term. Or maybe that's the right term. Yeah. And you're. And uh, I was. Re I'm reading right now a book by Doug Stanhope called "Digging Up Mother" yeah. or something. It's about. Yeah, I think it, that's it's a memoir. And um, I got to one part that I thought was really interesting. He was like, "What was cool about reading a newspaper was that you could sit down with a cup of coffee in the morning, pick up the paper, start reading through articles. You pick some. You, you, you didn't read others. And if you were really bored and didn't want to like get to work yet." You might read the ads at the end of the paper. By the time you got to the last page and you turned it, it was done. It was over. It was no more. You start your day now, okay? With the internet, it's infinite, and you can stay there forever. All these, what they call these K-holes or rabbit hole, whatever it is. And you just, that's what happens, you know? And so... It's okay. What's up? Is it an interview? It is, but I can... We can pause. No, it's really important what he's going to say. No, it wasn't. I just wanted to apologize. Oh, it's okay. Uh, Jerry got me on the news at 2, That's and then awesome. I sold the uh, Dorito, and I was like, by the time I was That's done, great. I, I, I feel great. horrible. No, no, it's all right, because I, I just did it really quick. It was fine. It was, it was an if and or maybe. Yeah. All right. Don't worry about it. I appreciate it. We'll do, do dinner a little later. All right? Yeah, well, I got nothing until we do the after party, so I'm, I'm free. Let's do it. All right. Um, take care of the uh, girls' kids. The girl scares. Girls, the girls, the two girls, the cosplayers. Oh, uh, wait, what? I'm totally blank. He's gonna talk to you. We'll talk right. later. Alright, we'll talk later. Okay. Uh, and, and if somebody comes up and wants to buy a book, okay. don't, uh, don't right. be afraid pausing me. Got it. It's okay. more important that you sell this. Thank you. Because we've got editors, they can cut, they'll sure. cut that chunk sure. out, so it's all good. So wait, where were we at? You were talking about the infinite. Oh, yeah. That you can go down a rabbit hole, and, and the next thing you know, hours are lost for nothing. I like, the other day, I read an article of people that went to Red Lobster for infinite shrimp. No. And I read the whole thing, and I got to the end, and I was like, I don't know what I expected from that. Because it was literally an article of photos of people eating shrimp at Red Lobster. And they weren't skilled enough riders for it to be actually, like, hilarious. It right. was just, look at these kids eating shrimp. And I, and I got to the end and I was like, I, I read that for 20 minutes and I could have been reading or doing anything else. Well, they somehow hooked you, I guess, with shrimp. <laughs> and there's that whole bait-click culture yeah. Yeah. that, uh, can, you, can you believe what just happened kind of headline, then yeah. you're supposed to click it. And then you realize, oh, there's going to be like 30 pictures or instances of something. It's going to be another click and pop-up window, another ad, another ad, another ad. And the thing that's weird to me is, so we're living in a culture where like, I guess you can skip through the commercial or whatever, or you don't pay attention. Now it's all in clicks, right? But like, you're still not looking at that either. So how are, are the people advertising even making money? Are they actually hooking anybody with their, their ads? You know, um... Because the ads that are coming up aren't the stuff that I'm interested in, yeah. You know, uh, or there, or or there are sometimes I'll I'll go to something on Amazon and I might click on a movie or a book or something. I go to Facebook and now they're advertising the very thing I was just looking at, which is strange, you know. But that's some kind of weird algorithm type situation, you know. Um, I don't know. I what, what am I afraid of? Like I said, I think I'm afraid of. <laughs> Of apathy and indifference. Yeah. You know, I'm afraid of people not engaging uh, physically. You know, uh, I'm afraid of the fact that even I fool myself into thinking that when someone likes something or I have a little parlay online that I've spent time with them. And I know I have technically. Yeah. But I'm still alone in a room often when I'm doing that. And that's sobering to me and I don't like that you know I want to get drunk on the idea of you and I hanging out with each other yeah that I prefer and at age 49 going on 50 that's what I used to and that's going away a lot now part of that's my fault as well because I am busy 
And so on the one hand, uh, there's something amazing about the fact that if I have to sit at an art table for 12 hours or whatever, I get to have these virtual parlays, you know? But maybe I'd put the pen down or get the job done quicker if that didn't exist and I had to go out and get it, right? Yeah. Or invite someone to my house and have it, you know? Yeah. House, apartment. But you know what I mean. Right. Uh, and because it's always there, this kind of like, you know, you dive into that stream. Uh, what was that in um, Finding Nemo with the turtles? You know, like that that fast-going stream. That's what people are just diving into that constantly, you know? And it's always there. I find that, like, a lot of... And, and, and what you're saying is just, like, it's so... It's, it's hitting me because it's... Like, I find myself in situations where I have friends that enjoy, like, gaming and movies and stuff like that. And so somebody will be like, hey, I'm having a birthday party, and I've rented... Here in town, we have the Alamo Draft House, which is right. like, you okay. know, yeah. a cool movie theater. I've rented the Draft House. Everybody come out, and we'll watch a movie that I picked. And my deal is, like, I don't... I'm kind of in a place where it's like, I don't want to sit in a dark theater with my friends for two hours and everybody go their separate ways. Right. Like, I'd rather spend those two hours shooting the shit. Yes. I'd rather spend those two hours, like, like what I think of in my 20s, where people would just... we just stay up and talk. Like... Or you split the difference. You spend four hours. Two hours of that is enjoying something together, and then you can talk about it. Yeah. You know what the internet needs? The internet needs a curfew. <laughs> you know? An enforceable curfew. An enforceable... Like, like I remember, you know, you put on TV, uh, and at some point, yeah. TV stopped. Right. The flag, the flag comes on. Exactly. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I guess I can't watch TV anymore. Yeah. I, I stayed up late, you Col know? Color bars for the internet. That would yeah. be like... <laughs> That's what the internet <laughs> never, needs. Never That's not going to ever that. happen. No. So you have to kind of, like, enforce it yourself. Put on your own handcuffs. And I'm sure they built apps and devices for that very purpose. Uh, and it just comes down to a certain kind of discipline. But despite all that, I... On the one hand, they keep saying how it just connects us more, and I think it disconnects us a little bit, that kind of connection. I, I have more to say about that that I will say when the thing is off. Very good. But uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Red Hook. It's not just a hero, but also, right. is that your neighborhood? Uh, no, well, I, I live next to Red Hook. Yeah? So I live in Carroll Gardens, which actually at one point was Red Hook, but then they, uh, land developers wanted, you know, Red Hook came with a, with a history. I mean, it was so, it was so tough, Red Hook. The only, uh, the only person I know from Red Hook is Taz, professional oh. wrestler Taz. Oh, okay. Uh, well, Captain America's from Red Hook. Oh, cool. Steve Rogers. Um, uh, who's the famous gangster? Al Capone. Al Capone tried to be a gangster in Red Hook, and it was so tough that he had to go to Chicago to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's got a certain history. I believe on the waterfront was partially inspired by, you know, the water, waterfront in Red Hook, but also New Jersey, of course. But, um, I don't know, I just love the that, that fact that it's hard to get to Red Hook. A bus gets there, otherwise foot, car, or bike, but there isn't a subway that gets you there. So, by the time you get to the end of Red Hook, you know, it's about being worth your salt, in a way, you know? And, uh, and yeah, it, it's kind of, it, it has a tough history. Now it's become a little more artsy. Yeah. Um, and I love the, the name of the place. I love I love the domain. I love the space. And and so anyway. And then I also I have a studio in Gowanus. And at one point, me and my uh, former studio mate, the late Seth Kushner, who created a character called the Brooklynite, and I was coming up with this character called the Red Hook. We wanted to do like a two-man anthology, uh, you know, superhero type thing, you know, that takes place in Brooklyn. But I felt like it needed a hook. I know that sounds like a pun, but... Yeah. And I just didn't know what that was. And in 2014, um, some German artists pulled a prank on the Brooklyn Bridge where they replaced the American flags with white flags. And we didn't know that for about a week. But in that week, I started thinking, did Brooklyn give up? Did it, is it surrendering? Is it waving the white flag? For why? And then I started thinking, oh, maybe... Brooklyn's alive, it's sentient, and speaking of apathy and indifference, it's kind of tired of this shit, you know, like I'm yeah. done with being, uh, dealing with the, the, the self-entitled, as it were, and I started thinking, well, maybe it, what if it seceded, and literally broke away from New York City, ergo America, and went back to days of old, where you built communities, and like we were saying before about Armageddon, like that's where people get together. And 
kind of dispensed with some of the technology and, and, and the stuff that distracts us. Instead, had people looking at each other and communicating with each other and building things and growing things again. And could Brooklyn sustain itself? And I was like, yes, it could. And then I started to fantasize a little bit. I started thinking, well, because of all the artists are getting kicked out of Brooklyn, New York, and, and all the big major cities, um, what if art was something you could barter with? You know, and I've done it myself actually with a dentist for a root canal. I made him a piece of original art, you know, and yeah. I, it paid for a root canal. So, and I know other artists have done different things like that. So I started thinking about that and how a doodle could get you a drink, and you know, maybe a landscape painting could get you a house, you know, that kind of a thing. Then, because I had this superhero, the Red Hook, I was like, well, what kind of superhero is he? It? It, it might be a little trite and rote and boring. That'd be another, you know guy that just kind of gets, you know, graced with powers or something. So I said, maybe he's a super thief, but he doesn't have any powers. He's just really good at being a thief. And that made more sense to me in Red Hook because Red Hook has, you know, nefarious characters in it. But he's not evil. He's just kind of a bad guy. Yeah. You know, he just steals things for himself and his girlfriend. So then I thought, well, it's got to be a hero's journey, though, at the end of the day. So what if a super thief became a superhero against his will uh, and had to save people or he'll die. And that's what this, that's what I finally clicked on between the character and the place. And I made Brooklyn a character as well. Yeah. And so I, that's I really, what the Red Hook is. I like the, the play on, uh, I thought it was genius, Benson Hurst. Oh, thank the you. Character was, uh, was yeah, and pretty, the Green Point. And, yeah. And then the Coney. And I, I mean, I, I play with Brooklyn, you know, places and turn them into characters. Uh, because after all, I was like, you know what? That's going to be an expectation, I think, of, of this type of story. Because it's like a mashup of, like, Silver and Golden Age comics meets, you know, John Carpenter's Escape from New York, you know, because of that quarantine kind of, you know, uh, uh, borough, yeah. as it were. Um, mixed with, like, kind of like the struggles I'm dealing with right now as an artist in Brooklyn and what I fantasize about as, as a solution. Uh Talk a little bit about the format. Right? So this is published on a platform called Webtoon. It's Line Webtoons, a, yeah. which is, uh, uh, they've been around for, uh, Webtoons has been around for about a decade, and they've been delivering vertical scroll comics uh, ever since from South Korea. And then uh, I got approached by Tom Akel, who's the guy who is basically is the editor-in-chief of the Americanized comics, or the American comics. And um, he approached me to pitch him something original, uh, a creator-owned thing, that they would then pay me to produce a weekly webcomic for 26 weeks. I pitched him a couple ideas. I talked about the Red Hook. And it, at the time, it was just a solo effort. And I said, well, you know, there's a couple of characters that also could come with that, uh, and we could build this universe, the new Brooklyn universe. He loved the idea. We got to take... Seth Kushner's posthumous superhero idea with co-creator Seamus Bial and uh, another artist that's also working on the series named Jason Gungor from Australia. And so they're um, fully realizing the Brooklynite. And then there's another character that I co-created with writer Vito Del Sante and artist Ricardo Venancio called the Purple Heart. And the Purple Heart, for lack of a better term, when I first was thinking about it was like Brooklyn Silver Surfer you know in a way but he's like the cosmic guardian and, and avatar for the heart of Brooklyn so you kind of find out more about what happened in the secession through the Purple Heart and then the Brooklynite uh, the way Seth put it was um, he's got um, Superman powers with Spider-Man problems yeah, which is a great amalgamation of, of those those heroes. So. Are you drawing that book digitally, or are you drawing it? No, pen and ink. And so, what? How? Like size-wise, what are you drawing it on? Are you doing like panels on eleven by seventeen, and then just arranging them vertically, or? So what I'm doing is I'm very keen and aware of the vertical format, and having to it's been a challenge, and the you know trying to figure out as I lay it out like what works well storytelling-wise as a vertical scroll while producing it as a traditional comic. So I draw like I've been drawing comics. I think it's like 10 by 15 is the actual art live area. Uh, I've had to dispense with uh, insets, double page spreads, uh, a splash page. It's just like a nice big panel on your phone. Um, I've had to think about pacing and stuff. And I do cut it up and rearrange it for the vertical scroll. And I letter it twice, one for the comic, the traditional comic, eventual print. 
uh, one day, and then for the immediate uh, version right now that everyone can read for free. Yeah, I, I uh, like I said, I, I read it just this morning, and it was immediately like, uh, again, I'm trying to avoid the hook pun, but the hook of it, because uh, you, you kind of set up the exposition of it right away, let people know this is a world in which this takes place, and then it hits the ground running. Yep. Uh, yeah. and, and that was nice, because I think, I think as well, the tendency in a lot of first issues nowadays to me is it's like, you, you get the promise of the hook on the last page, so you're not even getting the hook as the first issue. You're getting a bunch of like, I don't know who these people are, right. or what they're doing, or why they're doing it, and then they'll go, next issue, tune in, because issue two will have a hook, and it's yeah, sort of like, yeah, yeah. all right, yeah. but you've already lost me at this point, right. you know? Right. So I like, I like that immediate grab. I think that's the best way to start a story is to, like you said, immediately grab them in hopes that they like that grab, you know, of course. Uh, the other key is to make you care. So I'm talking about a city that could be your city. Um, I'm writing and drawing characters that might have the kind of problems that you could have. And it's all metaphor, you know. And, it's, and you want that kind of escapism because it's comics. And, yeah, that, that's the stuff that I care about. And it's the stuff that I, tr I think hard about, how to make that work. And thankfully, in your case, it's working. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Thank well, you. you can get uh, Red Hook on Webtoon. I know uh, uh, The Fox, which you work with with yep. uh, Mark Wade, is available in print and on yep. Comixology. Yep. Yep. Um, where can people find you before curfew? Before curfew? <laughs> uh, at DeanHaspiel.com. I'm on, you know, the Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, after curfew, you're going to have to knock <laughs> on my door three times. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Hey, thank you. So, the uh, one of one of the interesting things that I that I learned about you yesterday is that you you have a a, a particular affection for a particular brand of fairy tales. And yes. it made me wonder about uh, how how the twisted mind of Alex DeCampi was was formed in your early years. What what, what did you gravitate to in terms of uh, popular culture, whether written stuff, media? You know, what, what was it that that really hooked you? Uh, the stories that I've, that were my foundation as a, as a storyteller um, er, from the earliest uh, were a, a combination of three different things. Um, one was uh, Daldare's Book of Greek Myths, which is basically Ovid for children. Children should never read Ovid, okay? Especially female children. There's swan raping and death by paternity test. And yeah, like, it's not, it's not cool. Um, the Greek myths are problematic, um, but very violent and a lot of fun. Um, and then the uh, King Arthur tales, specifically as retold by Howard Pyle, who's an illustrator and was local to where I grew up outside Philadelphia. Um, again, you know, women in castle, women in towers, or being evil witches. Um, and then, because uh, for reasons that weren't shady whatsoever, my father was commuting back and forth to Romania in the early '80s. Um, to set up a factory with a company that completely wasn't a large American defense contractor and there was no surveillance involved in this at all. And there isn't a dusty <laughs> file on my, in my, on my family in some corner of the, of the, of the DIE in, in some dusty archive in Bucharest. Um, I grew up on Romanian fairy tales, uh, which are the best fairy tales in the world, and seriously, I will fight you on this. Um, you, you don't have to fight me. I know, but I will, like, <laughs> you, dear listener, right now, I will, like, you know, like, come on, you Joseph Campbell reading motherfuckers, like, line up and I will take you down. <laughs> um, uh, and, and they were they were really important to me and remain really important to me in a lot of ways um, in that they, they upended almost everything else I had been taught about the role of women in stories. Um, we were not there to be rescued. Um, in fact, all of the, like, the, the female characters in Romanian fairy tales are all these badass and, and, and somewhat terrifying fairy princesses um, who are in control of their entire lives and, and don't so much get locked up in towers, but just get mad at the hero and leave. And then the hero has to spend 10 years tracking them down. And also there's one, uh, there's this really glorious fairy tale. Uh, the version I have in English is called Iliana Simziana, but it's also called The Emperor's Daughter occasionally. 
about this girl who dresses up as a boy, and, and it, it basically is why wait for Prince Charming when you can become him. Um, Emperor has to send his daughter to court, uh, send a son to court, otherwise he'll lose all of his lands. Problem is, he only has three daughters. So the youngest one dresses up as a boy and becomes this really effective kick-ass prince as a girl in boy's clothing um, and saves the, the badass, scary fairy princess who later boils the, 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 the main emperor to death in a bath of mare's milk. Um, uh, yeah. Really heartwarming. <laughs> really uh, heartwarming love story. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Um, and then at the very end of the story, just before the, the, the fairy princess boils the, the, the redundant emperor to death, um, so she can marry the prince. She kind of arranges for the for the the, the girl who's dressed up as a prince to to change gender via a curse, and she actually becomes a real. She goes through magic transition and basically becomes a guy, and then they get married. Um, these fairy tales are wonderful. <laughs> um, uh, I also grew up. I, I grew up outside Philadelphia, and um, we had Channel Twenty Nine, which before it was a Fox station, was just a crappy local TV station that replayed B and Z movies. And I was a latchkey kid, so I watched a ton of exploitation and grindhouse films um, and just really bad old films and some really good old films. I mean, I, one of the youngest, the earliest films I ever remember seeing was The Guns of Navarone, which is a great film. Um, and lots of Japanese anime. It, pl- it played all of the, um, uh, the American versions of Space Battlecruiser Yamato and Science Ninja Team Gachaman. Um, and as you, as you said the other night, you know, what team do you want to be on? The, the Science Ninja, Ninja Team. team. <laughs> um, and the, the girl from the the, the, the girl from Science Ninja Team, Gachaman, was really fabulous. Like, she ran a cafe. She rode a motorcycle. Um, she had this awesome swan costume with these thigh-high boots. I be her when I grow up. Yeah, no, you know? she was amazing. And she had this, like, I want, I, I want to get, okay, I don't normally go in for nerd wear, but I want to get her shirt. It was, like, a number three shirt, like, blue with, like, little red cap sleeves and stuff. And she wore it with these really cool striped jeans. I mean, she was just, like, she just was really cool looking, like, for, for a kid like me. I was like, I want to be this, like, Japanese girl when I grow up. Even though I think she was an American girl, actually, in the story. Um, she was, like, American, I but lose track because all of that so stuff, it was, it was told a certain way, yeah. and then it got redubbed and retranslated. And they and, just rewrote the story to make, yeah. they, did, they did a Weinstein on it because they thought, you know, poor Americans can't handle this overseas stuff. So they're just gonna, they're going to rewrite all of the characters and rename them and stuff. But I think in the original Japanese version, she was like American kid who was orphaned and like grew up in Japan or something. Something something like that. Like there's there there are Japanese tropes in anime, and then there are, uh, there are tropes that show up in anime after a certain point when anime started going over to the states, and it yes. was almost like that was their version of pandering to the audience that they knew that they would eventually have yes, to some extent. Yes. So they were readily, you know, making things so that, you know, they could be refashioned. So I was a little bit pre-Robotech, but I was definitely, like, on the big Japanese space epics. Mm-hmm. And this is really where my storytelling comes from. Um, and then I, I, I grew up and became really interested in, um, you know, Jean-Pierre, the work of Jean-Pierre Melville, the director, um, his crime stories, Le, Le Samurai, Cercle Rouge. Cercle Rouge, which is the, one of the greatest films so ever good. made. Um, Sam Peckinpah interests me. Um, I, his, his, the way he depicts violence fascinates me. Um, he's been badly used by the people who come after him who went, wow, like what Sam did with violence was really cool. It's like, no, that's not what he intended. Um, he didn't, he, like, he wasn't celebrating this. He was trying to terrify you and make you look into the depths of your immortal soul. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I think I, I sort of, for all the, I, I want to say I want to blame Ovid for all the violence, but I should probably also blame Romanian fairy tales, considering I just did talk about someone getting boiled alive by the supposed, like, princess that's being rescued. <laughs> so working in comics, uh, you know, the, the common question that I hear a million times that uh, that's kind of uh, worn on my last nerve is, oh, how did you break in? How did you get in? Almost like there's some secret door for everybody. What I'm, I'm more curious about is... How did I stay in? <laughs> well, at what, point, at what point did you identify that you wanted to work in comics? Was it right around the same time that you became a fan of comics, reading comics? Was it something that happened further on down the line? Uh, and I was a fan of comics very early on because I'm old enough that they were still selling comics in spinner racks and drugstores, and my mom realized that if she bought me X-Men comics, I'd shut up for a little while. Um, then I discovered Boys and Rock and Roll, went and lived in Hong Kong for a while, 
moved to the UK. When I was in the UK, um, a friend was moving out of barracks, and he gave me a whole... He's like, you look like the kind of person who'd, who'd like comics. And I'm like, well, yes. Um, and he hands me this huge, like, this box, this giant box of 2000 AD and, like, the really good Vertigo comics from, like, a long yeah. time ago. The old you know, school when, Yeah, yeah when, like, Warren Ellis, Hellblazer, um, Preacher, stuff like that. Um, a couple of really regrettable Sandman miniseries, which is probably why I never got into Sandman um, that much. But you had, um, you had ABC Warriors and Rogue Trooper. Oh, yes. All that um, really good. You know, Durham Red. Stuff. Like, yeah, like, oh, I love 2000 AD. It's, it's, it's so, so good. Um, consistently amazing uh, as, a, as a weekly sci fi comic. Um, uh, and of course, British Commando comics. Like, they're these little small format um, square comic books that tell a war story. Um, and they're, they're, they're really fabulous. And they're just the right length for reading in the bathroom. <laughs> I always have a stack of them in the bathroom. <laughs> TMI, I know. Um, but they're amazing, and you should find Commando comics if you like war stories. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really get into writing comics until after my first divorce, um, when I questioned a lot of things um, about myself and what I was doing and why I was doing it. And it was mostly because other people were telling me to do it, and, I, and they thought it was a good idea and what I was supposed to do. And I was like a good little girl. You know, came from a reasonably good family and like just did what I was told for a very long time, and therefore missed out on a lot of stuff I wanted to do. Like I was, I really wanted to act, but my parents um, were like, "We're not going to pay for your incredibly expensive liberal arts college if you continue acting." Um, so that was that, and I didn't have the guts when I was, so I went to college early when I was like 18 to be like, "No, I'm going to figure out a way to pay for this education myself and act." Um, and I'd always written, I'd always told stories, um, and so when I got divorced, I questioned everything uh, and decided I wasn't going to waste time anymore. And I was late 20s then, I think. Um, and I fell in with a bunch of people in London who wrote comics and enjoyed comics and read comics. And it was like, you know, Kieran Gillen and like Andrew Wheeler, um, uh, Alistair Watson. Terrible people. Uh, terrible people. Kieran Gillen and I started off making this really awful um, zine called Commercial Suicide. We've, we've since sent out strike teams and burned all copies of it. It doesn't exist anymore. We've rewritten the timelines. Um, You've just given me something for my archaeological dig list. There you go. Good luck. Um, <laughs> and... I realized I could write these things, and they and and unfortunately they all encouraged me. So um, you have you have the, my friends to blame, um, and I and I broke in. And what's even more incredible is I stayed in, um, despite all sorts of turmoil in my life. Um, also started directing music videos, created one of the most innovative long-form digital comic stories around. Uh, while I was pregnant. Which was? Valentine, which is on Comixology, which we're still doing very slowly. Both uh, Christine, the artist, and I had um, uh, had some life challenges, um, as you do. Uh, but you know, sometimes you don't create fast, but you just have to go at the pace you, you can go. Um, and we're on, we chapter 17 comes out next week out of, I think they're going to be 22 chapters in all. So we're, we're really near the end, and we started in, in like 2009. Um, but it's a lot of fun, and you, it's a fantasy adventure, and you can read it on your phone because it's all uh, formatted for phone screen panels. So it's very, very easy to read and breaks and work or on the subway or whatever. I'm sure my friend Chip is going to love the free comicsology in it. There you go. <laughs> so you, you broke in, you stayed in. Uh, what, what kind of, I mean, you, you talked about your love of Grindhouse movies. You're sitting here right next to a pile of, of evidence of your love of Grindhouse movies, your mm-hmm. Grindhouse-inspired comics. Uh, we've got Archie versus Predator on the other side of the table. Yesterday, I bought uh, semi semi automagical. Mm-hmm. I, I it's I, I want to make sure that I get every syllable right. You, yes. it's like you titled something to challenge tongues. Yes, I um, did. What also because I like terrible puns, as you know. <laughs> what 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 is it about this this work? What is it about the work that you continue to do that, that keeps uh, capturing you? I will eventually get to asking you about your your new fancy thing that I've read two issues of and that no one else has. <laughs> um, I love comics, uh, I mean, in some ways the same way I love music videos, in that I, 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 have, I have a problem with commitment, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and uh, comics are like a laboratory. You can, you can explore an idea in a miniseries, a five-issue miniseries, and really go into it, um, and then do something else. I mean, I, I've just come off, including the new thing we're about to talk about, two series of very real world no magic like all drama 
stories, um, and now I'm looking at doing things that are more fantastic. You know, like I, I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not someone like Ed Brubaker who do, who does a very similar book. I mean, there are similarities in my work. There's always a lot of suspense. It always ends up being a thriller. I mean, I could try to write write a romantic comedy, and it would be a thriller. Like I can't not there do would that. Probably be a car chase involved. Well. Steve Lieber and I are talking over doing a romantic comedy, and I already told him it's going to be 75% people in fancy clothes being sassy to each other and 25% explosions and murder. Because I'm sold. I've pre-ordered seven copies already. All the best romantic... I'm not a romantic comedy fan. Like, like, fam, if you ever take me out to a movie, don't take me to a romantic comedy unless it's Sherrod, and then we know each other really well, and it's awesome. Um, you know, take me to a gangster film or a war film, and I will be your friend. Um... But uh, the, yeah, the, the only the, for me the great romantic comedies have always had some other plot in them. I mean, aside from bringing up Baby, which everyone loves and I sort of like, um, you know, for me the great romantic comedies are The Thin Man, which is a dubious romantic comedy and it's a wonderful film. But like Nick and Nora have no arc; they start happily married, they end happily married, they drink themselves through an entire liquor store's worth of alcohol while solving this murder. It's great. Um, uh, uh, His Girl Friday, which is great. Yeah. Um, Sherrod, which is one of my all-time favorites. The Hepburn uh, Grant one. They're, they're in, in on Planet Alex. There is no remake. Um, and I'd also say uh, the Raymond Chandler scenes from Double Indemnity. You know, like you as, like, as, a, as a movie. As a movie, I don't love it, but. Those scenes. Those scenes work like gangbusters. Yeah, Double Indemnity. Like it's not. Yeah, I. I, I it's not a it's it's not a, as great a film that everyone as everyone makes out, but you can tell the scenes that Chandler came in and wrote. Yeah. Because suddenly this kind of very average noir just it, kicks it into up. another gear. It wakes up. It's, yeah, it's like a totally he meets the thing. girl, and like the, the the meet cute is just this amazing like you know fifty mile an hour like high speed car chase of repartee, which is just it's um, it's so good. It's Chandler. Um, why didn't Chandler write more movies? Why didn't they just give him more money? <laughs> well, and with, I mean, with Sherrod, you've got you've got actors in Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant who you could have them reading the phone book to one another. Yes, yes, but the, but the dialogue. Darling, there's a plumber down the way. No, but the dialogue is so good. I mean, I you know, um, whenever anybody comes up to me and says, "Do I know you?" Like, I just have to give them Hepburn's first line from Sherrod, and I kind of, and no one ever gets it. It makes me sad. And someday <laughs> someone's going to come back and give me Grant's next line, and then I'll know I'll have found a friend. Um, but yeah, she, he comes up to her and, um, at, a, at, a, at a posh ski resort, and I think it's her very first line of dialogue in the entire film. I'm not sure if she says something to the little kid or to her friend who comes over, but she's sitting there in these big goggles, and she's this wealthy widow um, named Reggie Lampert, and, and Cary Grant comes up and says, excuse me, do I know you? And she says, I don't know, do you want to? Because I already know an awful lot of people, and until one of them dies, I couldn't possibly meet anyone new. It just, it, it, it comes... It, Especially a movie of that era, none of them open that way. Yeah, you're not introduced to your your romantic comedy uh, couple that yeah, way. That, like that's the meet cute. Like he tries to pick her up and she sasses the living fuck out of him, <laughs> and he just sort of like tugs on his blazer and goes, "Well, <clears throat> if anyone ends up on the critical list, let me know." And then he tucks his tail between his legs and runs off. So what 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 is it? What is the what is the what is the, the set of ingredients that you like to have in front of you when you're crafting one of these stories? Is it having full control over the narrative? Do you like being given uh, a set of, of restrictions? Of You have Archie, you have the Predator. Do um, as you will. I create my own restrictions. Um, I mean, the thing we're talking about, um, uh, we're about to talk about Mayday, um, the, the, the third arc, the third miniseries in it uh, is going to be set on a train. The entire miniseries is set on a train. That is a restriction. I have to create drama on this metal tube thundering through the night between Bucharest and Vienna with all these spies on it. Um, and uh, so I've got five issues on a train. Uh, my artist is going to kill me. I don't care. Um, but it, it takes me a long time. Like, stories... Last call for the Winter Soldier. There you go. Um, the stories are a funny thing. Sometimes they come very fast. Sometimes they come very slow. Um, Banff, the Romanian fairy tale. The thing that's basically like a Romanian fairy tale plus Fooly Cooly plus Stalker equals this story. Um, I'm also a big fan of Tarkovsky's Stalker. I can talk about Tarkovsky for a long time. Um, and the Strugatskys, of course. Um, 
but uh, sometimes you have ideas that have been sitting around for a long time and you're like, I've always wanted to do something with this particular fairy tale, but I don't know what, and I don't want to like redo it it's just like as it is. And then at some point, some other idea comes into it, and it's like there's this alchemical reaction where like A plus B equals something that's much larger than the two of them, and suddenly you have a story. You know, sometimes you just have a feeling or like a situation and, and they just go into the rag bag of ideas and they swim around and then you add something else or you cut a scene from a, a book you're doing and that scene becomes an entirely different book. Um, I need to be like, I noodle around with ideas for a fairly... I, I noodle around with ideas for a fairly long time before they come together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say when an idea is ready to be born. You just sort of know. Um, there's a point where it's almost there where you, can, where you can beat your head against it and make it happen. But, you know, like I, the work for hire I take, I mean, sometimes, you know, I do like doing work for hire. It's fun to do something like Archie Predator, um, but I'm very careful with it. I, 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 I don't want to be overly dictated to, which is why I haven't really gone from Marvel and DC work. Um, you know... I want to have a pitch that I think that, that interests me. I can't write something if I'm not interested in it. Um, and so I tend to do little six-issue things and then get in and get out and make it something I really love and then tap out and I'm done. What do you look for in a collaborator? What do you want out of an artist that you work with? Uh, you know, what, what um, kind of conversational... Well, I, I collaborate with, with other writers a lot. Um, I mean, I'm collaborating with, a, with, a, with an actor who's... Um, uh, directing a, a film, and we're working together on a comic book adaptation of it. You know, I collaborate with artists a lot. Carla Speed McNeil has, has been a wonderful collaboration, and she's just she's amazing. Um, with artists, you know, I, I really it's really important to me that they bring something to the table, but that we treat each other as equals. I've the problems I've ha- the things I don't like about collaborators is people who lie to themselves. I very, I very, I, I meet very few people who are actively dishonest because I can usually see them coming um, to others, but not to them. But and know they're being dishonest. But there are a lot of people who lie to themselves about uh, their schedule, their availability, their their ability to get things done, etc. Um, and I don't like people who um, can't take the give and take of a of a of a collaborative relationship. You know, sometimes. They're going to try things that aren't going to work. Sometimes I'm going to suggest things to them that are terrible, and they're not going to do them. But like you know, we have to be able to have calm um, conversations about this, um, and it can't be like every time you're asking for a change. And I don't ask for changes that often. Um, it's only if if some, I really feel something um, doesn't support the story beat. Um, if, if it's you know, if I'm constantly going to be fighting with people about it. You know, God's honest truth is there are a lot of great artists out there and most of them aren't assholes so you don't get paid enough in this business to work with someone who's a jerk or who's, who can't deliver on time or when they say they're going to be deli- when they say they're going to deliver so um, you know that's, that's pretty much the thing and I've, you know, I've had I've fired a lot of artists you know I don't and I'm, I'm not ashamed of that fact now one of the things that you've got coming up that uh, that I've I've read a couple of issues of that uh, touches uh, touching back on you know the the CD dealings in Eastern Europe yes uh, <laughs> that, that you grew up with there's uh, there's there's a little bit of that uh, DNA in in Mayday uh, what, very much so what yeah what was it about Mayday that that made it the thing that you moved it up in the stack of things that you wanted to get done um I mean I've always loved a spy story uh, but I find the spy st- I find spy stories fasc- fascinating because they hang so closely to certain tropes that you don't need to re- like reinvent... I'm making air quotes, which you can't see on radio, of course. Um, you don't need to reinvent the genre to do really innovative things with it. You just need to take a, like, a, a little half step to the left. Um, and then you can, you're getting to, into some really interesting territory. I mean, a spy... Like, James Bond works because he's a white guy in a suit working for a government. So all the mayhem and the shooting he does is okay because he's a white guy in a suit with a British accent. Um, what if he's not in a suit? And I had a really hard time with this with the original artist from Mayday and then with Tony who took over when the original artist had a schedule conflict. Um, their first sketches were of Felix in a suit. And I was like, I said, Felix is a 24-year-old guy who's like from, uh, you know, he's, he, he's from Volgograd, he's from Stalingrad. Um, 
he's a street kid. He, like, he's not very sophisticated. He, he'll pull the trigger. I mean, he's basically a thug. Um, he's not James Bond. He's more Harry Palmer, but even more thuggish than Palmer. Um, and he's traveling with this girl named Rose, who's much more sophisticated. She's nomenclatura. She's been outside the Soviet Union for a while. She was, she was working at a KGB residence in, in, in Hong Kong, uh, where I've spent many years of my life. Um, not in the KGB residence, but in Hong Kong. Um, we were getting a whole new dimension of Yes, uh, and so um, he wouldn't wear a suit. He's going to be dressed up like any other kid. Um, you know, the, like if you're if he, modern day, he'd be in a hoodie and jeans and a t-shirt. Um, and that guy with a gun is scary. Because he's not, you know, he, he's a terrorist. And he's white. But, like, if, you know, what if we then make the spy character brown? And not in a suit, and not working for the U.S. government. Like, do you see where we're getting here? Yeah. Like, levels of, of deciding what someone's, you know, to put it in D and D terms, what their alignment is. Yes, yes, um, and 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 what the reader can support. And one of the fun things we do with Mayday is, you know, there are characters, there there are there are protagonists on both sides of the fence. Um, the Soviet characters are protagonists, and uh, Jack, the uh, the CIA case officer who's who's t- um, uh, tasked with tracking them down, is also a protagonist. And you'll you'll kind of you'll kind of root for both of them. And Felix does some pretty horrible things in the book, um, but I'm like, hopefully. I mean, in, in the world of spycraft, everybody does some horrible things. Yes, but because Felix isn't a British guy in a suit. Um, and driving around in the Aston Martin, the horrible things he does read as horrible. I mean, that gunfight is... It's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. I mean, that's a Sam Peckinpah gunfight. Yeah. Um, there's not blood on the screen for the sake of there being blood on the screen. There's, it's, it's just the result of what, it hap- what happens when you mix those two volatile chemicals together. Yes, exactly. Um, so so when, when Felix breaks out into violence... It is much like it is much more impactful, and like, and he, he doesn't speak English well, and he misses a lot of what people are saying. So he's having trouble. Like he's in this environment that he doesn't understand in California, which is radically different from fucking Stalingrad in 1971, um, or even worse, where he's posted in the Air Force in in, in Petropavlovsk, which is like fucking way, way, way eastern uh, eastern Soviet Union. Um, and he doesn't under like it's an alien world to him. It's a fascinating world, but it's completely alien. Um, and he's captured, essentially, and he has to get out. And but the thing is, now that he's been captured, the likelihood of his surviving going back to the Soviet Union is very small. Like he's been he's been compromised. They'll probably kill him when he goes back. But he has orders, so. It is. It is a really. It, it's a. It's a classic noir, but with, a spy tale, but with a lot of edge to it, um, in terms of the way the audience will read the violence and the way the audience, the way the, the motivations of the characters. Um, I mean, it, it puts the audience in a much more uncomfortable position in terms of deciding politically who you're behind, who you're backing, because you're, you're not really given a choice. Yeah. This is the story that you're reading. Uh, and maybe you dislike this person because of their their nationalist identity. Yes. But as a person, you can absolutely relate to them scraping by and finding a way to survive, even though, as you said, you know they've been compromised, and when they get back home, that might not be home anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, but you know, th- like he's a patriot. He's not going to defect. Like that's not that's not an option. You know that's not like mentally he'd never do that. Rose might, um, but he wouldn't. And so, yeah, that's 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 the fun of it for me. It's not just like, like the, the, there. If you read autobiographies of people involved in 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 espionage uh, and surveillance in the Cold War, it is fascinating. And there are so there's like so many events and so many attitudes and so many things that were going on. Like it's like you just want to write about it. Um, and hopefully May Day, which comes out in November from Image, um, will will be successful. It's a five-issue mini, because then I'm, I'm going to do further miniseries with these characters throughout the Cold War. I mean, the next one's set in 72, and it's going to be the Bader-Meinhof group. 
uh, with Felix being involved in that and Jack also Are you being sent to Berlin. Continue your playlists uh, into those miniseries. Oh yeah, uh, the Bottom Meinhof one is obviously the Krautrock book, um, <laughs> and then um, uh, one of our uh, characters who we set up as a traitor in Mayday returns in um, the third book, which was called The Red Arrow when it was sent set in Moscow, but now I've moved it to Bucharest, so it's not going to be called The Red Arrow, because that train from... It was named after the Moscow-Leningrad Express, Overnight Express, which is called The Red Arrow, and um, the Bucharest-Vienna Express doesn't have as poetic a name. It's like the Daria Express or something, the, the Overnight. Um, so I've got to think of another name. Um, the Daria Express. It sounds like a romantic comedy. It's not. <laughs> it's, re- it's really not. <laughs> So. so we've got that coming out in November, uh, and, uh, and any 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 other uh, little things that you have uh, in the works? Uh, no Mercy starts again on in October, um, in time for New York Comic Con for its final arc. Um, I've got a bunch of other things in the work. I've got another spy book from, well, it's sort of spyish um, from um, Dark Horse that hasn't been announced yet. Uh, I've got a couple other things that are happening. Um, I've had a weird year in that. I was supposed to do all these things, and they all got postponed for a variety of reasons. Um, but I have so much coming out when it's eventually announced. Excellent. Well, thank but you. But meanwhile, buy lots of copies of Mayday, please. If you, <laughs> if you like Cold War thrills and, a, and sex, drugs, and violence, and rock and roll. Those all sound like good things to like. LSD yeah. spiked vodka. There you go. <laughs>